the NIV, um, the deceived and the uh, deceiver, and the New American Standard, when I was reading this this week, uh, actually it was last week, it was uh, the misled, uh, the deceived, and the, the mis- those who are being misled, uh, those are the recipients of the leaders who really don't know what they're doing. And I wanted to stop, and uh, as I was thinking about the passage today, I was, uh, I've mentioned this before, that I like to go camping in the Bible. And when I go camping, it's a, a time when you make that fire, and it's, there's nothing else that would preoccupy, but you can gaze, I can gaze on a fire for hours, the, those flames just licking the, the, the wood, and, and it's amazingly... Uh, Peaceful, but your mind's caught off guard, and you're never, um, you're never satisfied with how much you can gaze into a fire. Sometimes, when I read the Bible, uh, I go camping, and it means I stay right there in a passage for a while until I understand it. And so, uh, in the Book of Job, for the last now it's been two weeks. I've been in three chapters and going inch by inch through that. And if I don't understand something, I say, Lord, I don't understand it. Sometimes the Bible is not easy to understand because the way that, the, way the translations are made or the way various um, publications and, and Bibles are written, um, it doesn't make sense. And so I'm in the book of Job and I'm trying to figure out uh, this conversations going back. And I came across this passage um, at twelve sixteen. With him, with God, our strength and sound wisdom, the deceived and the deceiver are his. The misled and the mis- misleading are his. And so Job understood something, that God is sovereign over all that happens and that he's using people who don't know for his own purposes. And of course he's trying to do uh, his work on earth and he's using all of you and he's using me whether we know it or not. But the idea of camping in scripture uh, to understand when, when the Spirit of God writes something in scripture, he wants us to know that. And so very strongly Job comes out and says, Elohim, this God, he is a God of wisdom. He's a God of strength. The misled and the misleader belong to him. Well, the question is, how does God change someone who's so convinced that they're right? You ever meet somebody so stubborn and so dogmatic that this is the way it is? Well, we've got a story today for you. And, and the question as we get into the book of Acts, as we, look at the, as we look at this passage, there's a lot of things in here. But the question is, how does God work in the human heart is really the fundamental question. And we're gonna, I'm going to give you the answer real quick, and then we're going to go through this. Um, there are things that happen in the apostle Paul's life. And, and what you'll see, what God does in this passage is that he's going to open up by confronting Paul and his world view, by confronting him with who he is as a person. And then what you'll see Paul do is he'll go into prayer. And you'll see how, how God uses prayer and the conversations with Paul 
and you'll get these here and don't worry about it. It brings us to him so that we understand how the Holy Spirit is at work. Without understanding that there is a Holy Spirit at work in the world, you wouldn't understand that there's an evil spirit at work in the world. But, but God's going to be using these things, and as he does, he's going to take us into the position where he brings those who are listening to a place of humility and brokenness. And God has to do this with a, especially a man like Paul. Strong leaders are never used by God before they're broken. You see that in Moses, you see that in David, you see that in Paul, you see that in me. Uh, God has done his work and I know what that hand is like. But when you have this work that there's a, a breaking of the spirit, there's something going on that has to take place then what he brings is, is a sweet fellowship. And the fellowship of people around really are part of this healing process. And as you understand that, then your message changed and then you begin to identify with Christ publicly. And, and Paul changed his message. Totally, radically changed. This raging rabbi became a passionate a promoter of Christ. And the last thing you see is that uh, God will send people and he will send help and resources in ways that will surprise, surprise us. So let me, uh, let me put these, we'll go through these slowly and you'll get these. And so don't worry if you're trying to write these down, we'll get them back to you. So what I want you to know is this. In this point in time, we're in Acts chapter nine, this has been two years, two years since the resurrection. In that time, you've had lots of things go on with the church starting to expand in Jerusalem. You have Pentecost. You've had uh, healing from Peter. And as you go in, uh, what you have in the first part of the book you, is you have Peter in the lead. And so the first part of the book is a, a Petrine focus where the leadership of uh, Peter and the ministry to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. But then you see the spirit shifting, moving out of Jerusalem into Samaria. And with Samaria, the Holy Spirit is moving into those deceived people, the Samaritans who worship in another place, uh, Stephen and Philip. And, but you see Philip and you see uh, Stephen and Philip and others are reaching out and their movement is away from Jerusalem to the nations, to the Gentiles. And... Uh, there's the shift, but here in the life of Paul, we're starting right in the middle of Acts 9 to get part of his story. And there's so much of the story that if you don't camp, you're gonna miss a lot of things. So I'm gonna share some of my camping meditation today. But here in the life of Paul, you'll see Paul was born in Tarsus, but he went to the university at Tarsus, which was the third largest learning center in the Mediterranean. He got a great education. Paul was an educated man, a scholarly man, a theological man, a, a, a rabbinical. He was born for the, the rabbinic, uh, rabbinical position because he was a thinker. He was uh, gifted in many, many ways. And therefore, his convictions led him to persecute Stephen and watch and organize the first martyr until until about 35, 36 AD, depending on which 
time frame you use, something happens to Paul. The misled belong to him. And Christ goes after Paul. And so what you have in this story, we'll talk a little bit later, you'll see on the, on the other side, is that after his conversion, Paul has to get some time alone with God, and he does so for three years, and he goes to Arabia by himself. And there's that picture of the camel. But what I want you to hear is this, that all that you see happening in the book of Acts, keep your eye on the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't see that, you're going to read the Bible from a purely human level, and you're going to miss this wonderful story. But he says in the book of Acts that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. What's a witness? If you're Hebrew, it means you are already programmed to be visual learners. To be a witness is to behold the Lord, to, to see the glory of God. All the way through the, the Old Testament, you see the Israelites called to be witnesses. To be a witness is to have an experience that you have actually seen God at work. So it's not just to be cognitive, it is to be participant in an experiential, relational way with the, with the Lord himself. And that's what was happening in the book of Acts when you see everybody having these encounters with Christ. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit that if you don't know how to discern the hand of God at work, it is the Holy Spirit. His job is to enlighten and bring the cross and salvation and redemption, all that Christ did, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring that inside of me, inside of you. That's his job. Jesus died for sin. The Holy Spirit will help you understand what the death and the resurrection of Christ does by giving you a second chance, by giving you the promises of God. And how many promises are there? 3,000. 3, yeah, you got it. Good. And so... By getting into this understanding of the heart of God and how God works and how the Spirit works and what Jesus did, you really are in a, in a position where you understand that you are being led by the Spirit. But know that when Christ came, it wasn't so easy because people had presuppositions. People had been conditioned. People had been enculturated, instituted to follow the traditions that they, were, they, they, they grew up with. And therefore, the Old Testament system, if you haven't read the Old Testament, go back and, and build that slowly because that's the foundational, that's the depth perception that you need. But the message that this Jesus of Nazareth, this, this no-name out of nowhere, this guy would be the Messiah. You've got to be kidding. Can anything good? No way. He wasn't sanctioned by the rabbis. He was, he's not one of us. He's uh, up there in Galilee. And so he's the outsider. And you notice, he didn't seem to really try to change the system. I mean, he didn't get involved with any of the seminars that were going on or the conferences. And he wasn't part of this religious system. And therefore, they had trouble with Jesus. So much so 
that they thought that they had to remove him because they thought he was a cult leader. Well, not everybody thought so. Those who follow Christ, who understood that, that this man who called each one by name, the disciples, the band that he wanted to spend time with, were motivated in a different kind of way. And let me say this to all of us. I've said this a number of times during my study in the book of Acts, and it just, it's always caught me off guard. That that which motivated the men and women of the New Testament does not, does not, does not motivate you and me. That which motivated them wasn't self-improvement. What motivated them was not how to get to heaven. What motivated them was not to fight the world and the, and the falling, the world's coming to an end. What motivated them was not uh, follow God and you'll get rich and have prosperity. What motivated the first century Christians was one issue, and Christ nailed it over and over and over again. And the issue was who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Who am I? And for the first century Christians, what they understood, those believers knew one thing. This is the Messiah. This is the one that God appointed. This is the one we've been waiting for. And it's about Christ himself. It's about the Messiah himself. It was about the fulfillment of all those promises in one person standing in front of me saying, follow me. Christ was the one, the vision that caught people up. It wasn't about what Christ could do for you. It was Christ himself. That motivated Peter. I'll leave my nets. When the Romans came at the end of the day for Peter, do you know what the Romans would do for the fishermen? They'd take the fresh fish and they'd give the fishermen the day old fish. Peter said, this isn't right. Uh, there's something wrong with having an occupation, uh, being a, a country that's occupied by foreigners. We want change. And therefore, a lot of people in that time wanted, wanted change. And a lot of Israel at that time, to the Messiah to bring about that change. And so what you see in Israel at that time, 2,000 years ago, that the Messiah was to free the land of all these foreign influences. That sounds familiar but also that the Messiah was to restore the land to that which was rightfully theirs. That sounds familiar. But this Messiah was going to do more than just politically guard our people. He was going to hold up the institutions, the constitution, the Torah, the temple. He would, he would sanctify that which we embrace and hold dear in the Mosaic law. This is the Messiah. And so Jesus, when he would come along as the Messiah, they would see him and they would measure him in this way. They would think he would take on the Romans. If he was truly the Messiah, he'd get rid of these foreign devils. And Jesus failed and disappointed them. But he also understood <clears throat> that they were expecting this Messiah to do what's right, 
never to be categorized as a criminal. And for Paul, the idea that the Messiah would hang on a cross as a cursed man, no way. He didn't fit any of the preconceptions that Paul had. And therefore, Paul was convinced that this man had to go. He was convinced that there's no way this could ever be the Messiah. And therefore, what do people who are convinced that this guy is wrong do? They go out and persecute him. Just like, just like Jesus was persecuted before the crucifixion, so Jesus was persecuted after the resurrection by Paul because this was not the Messiah. And yet, and yet, and here's the miracle of, of chapter 9, something happened in Paul's life that changed his convictions, the misled and the misleading had to be confronted. And therefore, how did Jesus convince Paul? This is part of Paul's story to be told. Elect him to be your pastor. Paul was a good man. Paul was a righteous man. Paul was a moral man. Paul was a theological man. Paul was everything you wanted in a pastor. And therefore, to understand, put yourself in their position, what the Jewish people were doing back then in the temple is just what you were doing this morning in church. There was no difference in the sense that they had a religious system that they were working on. And both of these systems were, were part of God's plan to bring in this personal relationship, except Paul didn't have this faith that Christ would be the Messiah. But if you read Isaiah, and he knew that this Messiah was going to do something new by bringing new beginnings, second chances, this is the promised land. This is the exodus coming out. And so this Messiah was going to do something, but Paul did not see it, nor would he see it, because Paul had to be confronted. The first thing God's Spirit does with our heart of us is he has to put his finger on our heart. He has to put his touch on our convictions. And so the first step of conversion for any of us is a self-confrontation where we answer that same question. Who do you say that I am? There is a qualitative difference between the answer that says, well, we go to church and we believe in God. And the answer that says, you are the Christ. You are the one that the Father sent into the world because he loved the world, you bring us the perspective of the kingdom. You are the Son of God. Peter, you didn't figure that out. The Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Well, for Paul, notice what happens with Paul. Did you notice when you read that passage that Jesus did not have a conversation with Paul. Uh, Paul, let me share with you why I'm the Messiah. Paul, let me talk about the doctrine that you have from Isaiah and, the, and, and what you understand. Paul, 
No, no, no. Paul was confronted not with the, with the pre-cross, pre-crucified Christ. Paul was confronted with the resurrected Christ. And seeing the resurrection of Christ, Paul fell down, was bowled over, and blinded by a glory that he did not know. Paul had an Isaiah experience where Isaiah says, Woe unto me, for I am a man that's unclean, and my lips are unclean, and I am undone. What God's Spirit does when he breaks a man is he breaks him down to the point where he looks up. Now this thing about Jesus at this point is amazing. Paul is an enemy. Paul's persecuting his people. And therefore, there's something about Jesus here that you need, to, you need to hear. What does Jesus do when his people are being attacked? He's a shepherd. Shepherds know wolves. Jesus knew Paul and knew that Paul was attacking his sheep in Damascus. And therefore, when, when Jesus confronted Paul, he didn't see a wolf. He saw a son that was going to be redeemed. And so when Jesus looked at Paul and what he saw in Paul was not the sin, not the, not the damage that he was doing, he saw the soul of Paul and touched and called and reached in and pulled Saul out of himself. Jesus would say, the sheep hear my voice. Paul couldn't hear his voice. Because Paul was not being led by the Spirit. Paul was stuck in his own thinking. And if God were to speak to his thinking, uh, Paul, in and of himself, would never come out of himself. And therefore, God had to speak to him. And he did, audibly. Paul heard Jesus. And he said to Paul, Why, why are you fighting me? Well, Think about this. If Paul were confronted by Christ and Christ wanted to get rid of this wolf, there are two ways, there are two ways he could do that. Uh, but if, if Jesus were to at Paul and says, enough, Paul, I'm done with you. I'm going to remove you. But Paul doesn't do that, or Jesus doesn't do that. There are two ways to get rid of your enemies. Is one, you fight them. If you fight your enemies, uh, you can really destroy and remove them that way. But that's not the way of the Lord. What Christ does is he doesn't fight them. He frees them. Christ wants to free every heart that's bound by a wrong conviction. Do you remember the story about the Gadarene demoniac who was in prison? They, it was so so terrifying. He was a violent man that they had to take him outside the city, put him in chains. He'd break the chains. This man was violent. He would attack anybody that comes by. And the people said, this guy is so bad, we've got to get him out of our city, out of our community. Let's put him in prison. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. People who are demon-possessed don't need to be isolated and, and put aside. They need to be set free. And when Jesus touched that man, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus with a sound mind. Jesus healed him. 
He healed him from his, his own tragic, tragic story. Well, likewise for Paul, if Christ's spirit comes into a man who's resisting the Messiah because of these notions and this background or whatever, and he doesn't have the spirit, what, what the spirit had to do with Paul was to touch his heart to say, Paul, you're not after me. You love being who you are. You love being in your system. You love being in your denomination. You love being a Pharisee. And the idols in the heart of Paul was the master that Paul served. The thing about Paul was if the Spirit of God was leading Paul, he would have believed like Jesus said that people who would believe would follow Jesus. But Paul didn't. And therefore, Paul loved something else besides God. He loved everything else but God. And therefore, what he didn't understand was that God loved Paul so much more than Paul loved God. Even while we were enemies, Paul would later write, even while we were enemies, God would demonstrate his love for us. God does not take his cue from you. God takes his cue from himself. He moves out of his own character and his holiness and his righteousness and his passion of love because he was out not just to get rid of the wolf. He was out to redeem the heart of, of this man named Paul. And therefore, the passage, uh, that the description of Paul that I love best is F.F. F. Bruce. Bruce's uh, title for the, the apostle, he is the apostle of the heart set free. His heart was freed. Jesus touched him and convinced this unconvinced man immediately. It wasn't a cognitive thing. It wasn't a question and answer. Do you agree? The fact that God did not kill Paul on the spot, when he could have. And when Jesus spoke to Paul, I am sure the tender voice the mercy, the kindness that Paul looked at when he saw Christ and then he became blind. From that, the story begins. Paul, I chose you. You didn't choose me. You are my instrument. I want you. Now, what happens next is that Paul becomes very much aware of his situation and he's terrified. And therefore, as you see, Paul says later on, this is what Paul says. Uh, I, he came to understand God's work in his life, but Paul says this, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and he called me through his grace. He didn't know grace before. He knew performance and commitment and dedication and discipline, but now this new word, grace. God has set me apart because of his grace and he's going to reveal him, his son through me. This was a new man. A totally new man that had another person living inside of his mind and his spirit. Paul became aware and he was aware of the fact that God created him and that God had chosen him and now he had a calling on his life because when Christ said to him, he said his name, Saul, Saul, first name basis, 
personal. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And Paul was aware of the fact he couldn't escape, but he didn't know what to do. The second thing that, that God does, interesting in the story in the book of Acts, is you find Paul immediately going to prayer. And as he goes into prayer, imagine, imagine if you were Paul and now you're blind and you can't, you can't, I mean, what happened? And then you immediately break into prayer. What do you pray? How would you pray at this point? Uh, God, restore my sight. I don't know what's going on. Help me here. Jesus, who are you? It wasn't self-centered prayer. It totally shifted because in the presence of God, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about this wonderful glory. But Paul was in this point, and as he's thinking about uh, praying, I'm sure he was, he was not only praying his, his thoughts, but what it says in the passage in, in 9, uh, Paul, Saul rose from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Interestingly, they, so they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, for three days, Paul was without sight. For three days, he neither ate or drank. For three days, Paul is stumbling around in confusion. God didn't clear it up immediately. There's a point of confusion where Paul had to feel so overwhelmed that he was taken down into this dark spot where he didn't know what to do. Now notice 9.10 says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and Ananias knew the spirit. He says, yes, yes, Lord, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold he is praying now eight street was the camp in this passage uh, the word the word straight street was the main street that ran all the way through the city east to west in in Damascus and and notice where he took, they took Paul. We don't even know who they were. Luke doesn't include that. But they were probably friends, companions, companions of Paul who came up to persecute the church. But when this happened, those companions saw their leader, Paul, broken down, become blind, and then they took this guy up, Paul, and they took him to some place in Damascus. Where did they take him? They took him to straight. Street. This is the main street. This is the, the place where all the businesses were. If you were there today, it would look like this. Uh, it is downtown Damascus. And at the edge of that street where it starts is the place that there was a man named Judas. Now, you've never heard of this Judas of Damascus guy. You've heard of Judas Iscariot. But this Judas of Damascus, was he a believer? Was he an unbeliever? We don't know. Well, so you do a little study and you camp at the fire and you find out. But 
they, they built this chapel over Judas's home, but this is where Paul was for three days. Now you imagine if you're a Judas, and now knock on the door, hello Judas, this is Saul, he's blind and God's working on him, and they drop him off. Whether the other guy stayed with him or not, we don't know. But Judas is the host for Saul during this recovery period. And so God calls upon Ananias. Paul is praying in Judas' home. And guess what? A little study. You find that Ananias is in his house. And God's talking to Ananias. And guess where Ananias lives? On Straight Street. They're in the same neighborhood. Probably not that far. It doesn't give the details. But this is, this is, this is Ananias' home if you go there today. These happen in place and time. These are real places and real people. And therefore, while Paul is praying, Paul sees in a vision, God's spirit opens up and says, Paul, there's going to come a man named Ananias. And he's going to come to you. And he's going to help heal you. And so Paul waits for this guy and... Hello? Hi, I'm Ananias. Is there a guy in here named Saul? Well... Yeah. You see, the Spirit of God is working behind the scenes, and Paul realizes that. How does God change a heart, hardened like Paul? Little by little, Paul is introduced to the way the Spirit of God is at work. And so, what you see, he was taken to the house of Judas. Ananias comes into the house, and he hears Paul praying, and Paul stops praying. Why? Because here's the answer to prayer. And so Paul comes in to the room and Ananias comes into the room. Imagine that scene. Ananias. You know the history of Paul. Ananias goes up and touches Paul and calls him brother. Somehow the Spirit of God filled Ananias with a love and a strength that says, I'm going to move into this tension. But Ananias was free too. But he called him brother. And so when he called him brother, I'm sure Paul needed to hear those words. And then Ananias laid his hands on him and the scales fell from his eyes. And Paul began to see again. How does he... Heal a hard heart. He does it by helping his eyesight first. And then, and then right there, the conversion of Paul was moving off of just the healing. Paul received the Holy Spirit and his heart was no longer rebellious and resistant against the Lord who had just touched him and healed him. Can you imagine Judas? Can you imagine the, the companions of Paul? What's going on here? What's going on here in, on Straight Street? Here's Paul. And so what happens next is Paul was baptized. And, and how that happened, Luke doesn't say. Was it in the house of Paul? Was he sprinkled? Was he went to a river? We don't know. But it says he was baptized immediately. And that means he would identify with Christ publicly what had been done privately. And therefore, Paul knew that the change had been taking place. And therefore, but 
this whole emotional experience left Paul three days without eating, and now you have this spiritual experience, and you meet Christ, and you're baptized, and filled with this. It was so draining. The first thing Judas probably did was, honey, get some food. We need to feed this guy. And he was restored eating. And so he was physically nourished, emotionally affirmed, spiritually born again, and then Paul became strong. And when Paul became strong, what did he do? He went out and he preached Christ. Well, he, he, he got himself into trouble. So what happened next with this guy, he was three days in Judas's house, maybe several other days, but he stayed in Damascus for several days. And notice what happens. Uh, this is in Judas's house. Uh, he started to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And Paul kept getting stronger. And it's not, a, it's not just an overnight thing, but Paul gradually began to see he is the Christ. He is what Peter said. He is what Stephen said. And all of a sudden, it became clearer and clearer and clearer, and Paul was just going to get stronger and stronger because he was that kind of man, open to the Spirit. And what happened was, Many days, he stayed in Damascus. And when the Jews got a hold of it, we got to get rid of this guy. He's, he's just like Stephen. He's just like Jesus. And they came after Paul. Well, Paul, again, you're in a real short turnaround time here where Paul hears the story that they're after him. And they're going to give to Paul what Paul was dishing out to all the other people. He was going to be persecuted. Now, interesting, Paul escaped. And how did he escape? Through that large basket. Who was holding the ropes? When you go over that wall and you're 30 feet high, who is holding the ropes? Paul had to learn how to trust his new brothers. He didn't know. Well, this story goes on. But when you start camping and you see these pieces come together, if you just read the passage, you're going to miss these pieces. Next week I'm going to look at this because the changes that took place in Paul were phenomenal and they became instrumental in the sense of how he tells his story later on. Just real briefly, you'll see one change here. I was extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he became a Christian, Paul changed. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The Messiah came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And Paul was humbled. And when he was humbled, he was healed. How does God work in a hard heart? He confronts people. He brings in prayer. He brings in the Holy Spirit. He brings in family and friends who, who want to support and love him. And they work with him. And they bring him up and they feed him. There's so much to this story. I'm going to continue it next week. But you need to know this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's doing it in Paul's life in chapter 9. He's doing it in Chesterland today. He who has ears to hear, please hear what God is saying. God will do the same thing for you as he did for Paul and for me. We'll continue this next week. Good stuff. Let's pray.
Lord, take your word into my very heart. Take it into our souls that that which we believe about you is what is really true about you, not what we think about you. So Father, would you take uh, again this message and make it a reality for us as well. And we give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.